The hunter-gatherers societies that are still around, their gut microbiome is far different and far healthier than modern-day urban dwellers who only eat a few things. Food is medicine. There has been a relentless combination of deliberate confusion by the food industry and essentially the complexity of the science in it, right? The nutrition science. Fats are bad. Fats are bad. Cholesterol is bad. Cholesterol is bad. If you eat cholesterol, you will get cholesterol. I mean, the entire obsession with low-fat, low-fat, low-fat. In fact, the great popularity of vegetable and seed oils itself kind of became popular during that time. For some reason, people seem to believe that nutrient loss by cooking method is a huge factor. No, I think the single biggest big picture myth is that there is such a thing as hero foods and villain foods. Only way to be healthy, lose weight, reverse diabetes, or reduce the onset of that, all of that sort of stuff is to eat. From Wine Studio, you are listening to The Inspiring Talk, a show where I bring the conversations with today's most successful and inspiring personalities to help you take your life, business and career to the next level. Ashok, Welcome to the show. Pleasure. Ashok, this is, uh, you know, the conversation that uh, I was a little bit scared to have because I don't have a lot of experience being in the kitchen. Growing up, I remember, you know, I used to try and sneak into kitchen when my mom was doing her thing and she would always say that, go back and study. And she really never allowed to be around in the kitchen. And uh, later on, when I sort of started living on my own for my studies and so on and so forth. And then when I had to cook and I had no other choice, and I realized that it requires a lot of patience. And that's where you also start your book, Masala Lab, right? So have you always been patient when it comes to sort of being in the kitchen? What's been your journey like being in the kitchen? I mean, anyone who knows me... Um will know me as being the most impatient person of all time, right? I'm, I'm forever fidgeting. I speak very fast. And then I don't have patience when people speak very slowly. And uh, if anything, I think it's the it's being at the kitchen and cooking that really taught me things, right? And, and also it's uh, looking at people cooking, learning from them, uh, my grandmother, my mother, and, and other people in the family. And in a sense, the inspiration for the book and why I said you know, patience is probably the most important thing right up front is is it really teaches you that uh, you can't rush things. Yeah. Uh, things will cook at their own time, right? I mean, temperature, pressure, gelatinization, denaturation. Biological systems have, have work at their own pace. You can't just rush them along. Yeah, I remember to the point that I barely, when I was cooking, when I was in my college days, there was like barely time in the three, four years that I reached to the point where my onion was uh, brown. Like I... I didn't have the patience to do that, right? So, and also the other discovery for me, and like I said, and this is how bad I am when it comes to this whole food and cooking and so on and so forth, right? So when I was going through your book is when I realized, oh, there is basic taste called umami. So can you first take us and share with us, like what are some of the basic tastes? I could sort of find five. So maybe you can share some of the basic tastes and then maybe we can, we can talk about that in a little detail. So essentially, I think we now believe there are five tastes. There may be a few more, but I think the consensus now is that there are five tastes. And for most of our history, we assumed there were four. The newest one is umami, right? Uh, the fact that we have a taste bud 
for umami, I think, is a relatively new one, less than a, about 100 years or so. Mm-hmm. So every one of us, I think, as soon as we're born, I think the first taste we're very familiar with uh, turns out to be sweet. Mm. And it's, it's a so sweet and salt right at the tip of the tongue is where most of those taste buds are. And again, by the way, you know, that map of the tongue where they say this is sweet, that is bitter, that's actually wrong. So all taste buds are everywhere. But there's more density of uh, sweet and salt taste buds right at the tip. Uh, there's more bitter taste buds right at the back because you want to catch poisons before you swallow them. So that's why we say bitter aftertaste. Bitter is the last thing you taste uh, before you swallow something, right? And, and then you have the acidic uh, sort of sour tastes on the side that's basically detection of protons. Sweet is the detection of certain kinds of sugars, simple sugars, basically. Uh, and then um, your uh, salt is a detection of sodium. So anything with sodium will taste salty. And in fact, other elements in the same, you know, in that periodic table sort of a column, you know, potassium and others will also taste mildly salty. They will also sort of trigger the same uh, the channels, if you will. And I think umami is basically the detection of a very specific amino acid called glutamic acid. So if there's glutamates in food, you will detect it as umami, right? It's a way of triggering the fact that what you're eating is protein rich. The, the point is, I think, in, in historically, um, anytime you would eat things like, say, raw meat or any of the hunter-gatherers would eat that, the assumption is is that umami taste but developed as a way of uh, convincing people to eat uh, more protein. And essentially, I think, you know, raw meat, not very appetizing. And so, therefore, that umami sensation really just helps it along and so on, which is why normally umami is really more associated with uh, seafood and, and meat rather than vegetarian foods. That said... There are certain vegetarian sources of glutamates that people don't realize. You know, tomatoes are a great example, right? So we use tomatoes in everything, right? So, you know, when the tomato price goes up, I mean, everybody is annoyed. Not because, you know, what taste do you think a, a, a tomato brings? It's not very sour. I mean, not really sweet. I mean, it's umami, right? So that's really what it is. It makes everything savory, right? So that's, that's really what umami is a sense of meaty savoriness. Right, so you get that only from uh, in vegetarian sources. You get them from mushrooms. You get them from tomatoes. You also get them from Parmesan cheese. So anything fermented, right, idli, kanji, and all of those kinds of things is going to have free glutamates because the bacteria or yeast is going to break the protein, etc., and generate smaller amino acids. And glutamic acid is one of them. And once you have free glutamates, you know that's what really triggers the uh, umami. Seaweed is very high in it. So Japanese cooking because they cook everything in like bonito flakes, which is from the skin of the tuna, as well as seaweed, it's very, very high in glutamates. In fact, Ajinomoto, the company, was synthesized from seaweed. So that's how uh, monosodium glutamate was was actually made and then marketed by by that company so in Japan. Mm, that's really interesting. And, you know, while you were sharing about hunter-gatherers, you know, thoughts sort of came into my mind and I'm sure you've done a lot of research. It, isn't it really interesting that we started off by eating meats and, uh, you know, just like pretty much a, a single taste per se, or maybe depending on different animals, a little bit of hair in there. But then now when we look at where we are and if we particularly look at India, kind of taste and flavor and so on and so forth, like how has that sort of come about? Like and, and our own exploration of sort of adding a lot of stuff to our food. Yeah. It's quite interesting, right? So I think it's weirdly enough, it's actually the exact opposite. So it's estimated that hunter-gatherers actually ate a greater diversity of foods than we do today. So the thing is that you look at a single dish and you kind of think, look, I'm eating I'm eating rice, I'm eating dal, and there's a side dish, and then there's a maybe a chicken fry or a fish fry on the side, and there's a salad, I'm, I'm eating yogurt. So it feels like a lot. But when you think about the fact that hunter 
you forget the gathering part right the reason they're called hunter gatherers is because they gathered a ton of fruits and berries and roots and so on so so a very common misconception that our diet was just entirely meat wasn't true our human beings are omnivores have always been omnivores our diet was well basically whatever is available right so that is what we were right so if if you were living in the northern latitudes it was very meat heavy because you didn't have that many plants but if you were closer to the tropics most of your diet was again plants and berries and fruits and i mean you're forever experimenting to see which one is poisonous and which one is not and then digging up roots and uh, finding other fresh kind of fruit and eating that during that season and then catching different kinds of fish and finding out you know eating insects and eating every possible animal so in that's the sheer diversity of diet was much higher so even right now they actually find out that hunter gatherers societies that are still around in like the middle of the amazon and sometimes in the middle of africa and so on or even in the andaman their gut microbiome is far different and far healthier than modern day urban dwellers who only eat a few things so the diversity of your gut microbiome which is now so central to health and wellness and so on the more number of things you eat the more healthy it is if anything the the discovery of agriculture if in a sense started limiting our diet right so earlier you know we used to eat anything and everything multiple things um, and we only used to eat when things were found there wasn't a breakfast lunch dinner kind of a schedule right you hunted an animal you ate it you dug up a berry you have to eat it or it will spoil right so our entire body is actually designed for that sort of thing right the reason we put on weight so easily is that ancient man had no sense of when they would get food so when you got it you want to put on fat so that you don't know when you're going to get it next and your fat is your backup storage right it's like the extra charger you carry for your phone when you travel right i mean so it's basically uh, you don't know when you're going to run out of energy right and you can starve to death Uh, but ever since we discovered agriculture it basically gave us tons of carbohydrates all of a sudden you could eat any time you want you didn't have to work for it uh, not everyone had to do agriculture so it really changed civilization in many ways yes it made the modern world possible but it also fundamentally made us unhealthier because uh, we now eat way too much food without the necessary amount of physical activity and that's basically been mankind's history for the last 5000 years right hunter gatherers tend to be super healthy but at the same time that kind of lifestyle cannot support 7 or 8 billion people on the planet so that's the thing right so modern day you know people want to blame modern day agriculture and modern day food for all their ills it's just basically this you are basically a stone age body uh, living in a society that still has middle age sort of uh, culture and so on uh, but with uh, 21st century food and technology so we we're all figuring this out as we kind of go along uh, so it's going to be natural that we are going to all going to have type 2 diabetes and heart disease and so on but we are living so much longer now right i mean that the hunter gatherer died by the age of 30 or 40 uh, but we are living to like 80 and 90 and so in a way it's it, these are just very different times got it and when it comes to indian foods right i i heard one of your interviews where you said that pav bhaji is such a indian thing but nothing about pav bhaji is indian right except for the uh, nimbu the no, spices uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know spices nimbu nimbu and the spices uh, nimbu yes. and the spices yes. right all the veggies that goes into pav bhaji so what exactly yeah. is yes. indian uh, food when we say indian food right so like what does that mean no in a, in a weird way i think i keep thinking about this all the time right and by the only way i can say this is i think everything eaten by indian people is indian food and i would also be very generous and call uh, even food that is of indian origin as cooked by british people in london like chicken tikka masala and the, and the sorts of very british pub food pub indian food that's indian food too and the food cooked in say the trinidad and uh, and guyana by people of indian origin you know who then went there started using local ingredients but they still cook 
things like pepper roti uh, in Trinidad, which is basically like a paratha, but it has cheese. It's made of vaida. And uh, so it's a very much a fusion uh, sort of thing. So my feeling is that, you know, in the in the Vasudeva Kutumbakam sort of uh, sense, either you be completely tolerant and say everything is Indian. Because otherwise, if you go down the starting to draw all of these sort of boundaries uh, and so on, it's really not going to be great at all. You're going to end up finding a lot of difficult decisions to make, right? So at what point do you draw the line? You know, is biryani Indian? Is samosa Indian? Is sambar Indian? So you're going to really, because the tomatoes are not Indian in origin, the capsicum is not Indian in origin, the chilies are, so no dish with chilies can be Indian, no dish with potato can be Indian, right? Um, so it's, it's, you're going to be really, really restricted to what you then define. Uh, as Indian food. And again, what are the boundaries of India, right? You know, is pre-1947, what is Pakistan and Bangladesh were part of British India, right? If you take a wider note uh, of parts of Afghanistan, that's Gandhara, right? Kandahar is literally Gandhara from the Mahabharata. Mm. The guy who wrote the seminal textbook on Sanskrit grammar, Panini, what do you think Panini's hometown was, right? Uh, and I don't mean Panini, the, sand- the Italian sandwich, right? I mean Panini, the, the Sanskrit grammarian. His hometown was Kandahar, Gandhara. And it's it's a spectrum, right? I mean, the, so sometimes I find it difficult to define Indian food. Um, and mm. I would, at least in my book, I broadly say that there's something common about this part of the world where we essentially dissolve spices in hot oil. And the choice of fat and the choice of spices determines the specific sub-region of what that food tastes like. If it's ghee, cumin, etc., it's Punjabi. It's coconut oil, curry leaves and garlic. It is uh, Kerala. It is, mm. it is uh, sesame seeds and... Uh, uh, soft and other, it's chetinad. If it's mustard oil and punch foreign, it's Bengal, right? So, no matter what you do after that, whether it's chicken, mutton, or fish, or vegetable, doesn't really matter. So, it's that combination that determines, uh, that, that region's sort of flavor profile and so on. So, I honestly, I think the other way to think about Indian food is that it's a Indianization, I think, is what makes it Indian, right? In the sense that you can take anything. You can, they can, the Westerners can bring whatever ingredients they want, right? They can bring us cauliflower. They brought us, beans, they bought us cabbage and all of that. But we don't make that same bland dishes they did. Look at desi Chinese, we, we for make, instance, right? Yeah, we make desi Chinese, we make desi, you know, pasta. We we take those vegetables and make like alu, alu, uh, whatever your uh, alu gobi or we make alu patta gobi and so on. So we don't necessarily take those things and then obey their rules. I think, you know, uh, there's a certain way in which we just experiment constantly and that interplay of street food and home food and all of that stuff is really what uh, makes it Indian. So I would suggest let's be generous about the definition of Indian food rather than be sort of, you know, narrow-minded about it. Yeah. And this brings me to uh, sort of in your on, you know, understanding, you know, from the Indian perspective, are we more driven by taste or are we driven more by like, Maybe we might not think about like health when we are sort of preparing uh, and so on and so forth or nutrition for that matter. But when you look at like subconscious level or or maybe a you know layer to that, what drives more to the Indian uh, Indianness of the food? I, I think it's uh, bizarrely enough, you know, unlike the West, home cooked food in India, there is no line between health, nutrition, and food. So people really just combine all of those ideas into one. So the traditional Western idea of look, there's pleasure in enjoying just food for pleasure's sake. And then when, once you fall sick, you go to a doctor, right? You know, it's it's sort of like a very compartmentalized way of thinking about it. No, India is like a spectrum. Your grandmother will tell you that you must not mix, you know, fish and dairy. Uh, she will naturally just say that, oh, today you have a bad throat, so I'm going to make rasam with pepper. So it is just that I think the Ayurvedic idea of holistic wellness, which is that 
you don't distinguish between all of these you can't draw hard lines mm-hmm. right food is medicine um, in that eating well will keep you healthy I, so that i think you know people miss the forest for the trees this fundamental insight i think is deeply deeply profound we can disagree on small details right so you can of course say that look some of those very specific rules about not mixing fish and milk they made sense when we did not have refrigeration and when milk was not pasteurized you can have those small disagreements but i think you lose sight of the larger sense that food is medicine and that being mindful about what you cook i would really uh, i interpret it today as be uh, say, saying things like let's start by eating green vegetables right because fiber actually then uh, slows down glucose response given india as the diabetes capital of the world and then you eat the protein and then you eat the resistant starch like a dal and then finally carbohydrates is i think a really good way to think about food as uh, keeping you healthy and so on right but only problem is that we've also had a very uneasy relationship with modern science right uh, there's always the tension between we must listen to our ancestors they know everything what do these young people know versus obviously the obvious sense that the scientific method forget the west the scientific method has also helped india move forward you know the green mm. revolution uh, our own indian nobel laureates and all the people scientists in india who make isro happen it's not like they're following some 2000 year old science they're following modern science to make that happen so i think you know this generation is generation younger to mine is very much growing up in the in the modern science generation but i think the generation prior to mine is sort of like that transition generation that knows neither to do this or not so in my opinion i think indian food is fundamentally really about it has to be a sense of uh, holistic wellness uh, that is how we think about it but it also has to taste good so in, in the west when you're sick the, the food you eat is just terrible mm. uh, it is just bland it is devoid of anything uh, no but actually you know the food you give sick people in india is also delicious in its own right you know you give them khichdis you give them these sort of you know chicken soups and you give them all of these other kinds of dishes that are actually absolutely delicious in their own right this is also a place where uh, vegetarian food is not a compromise it's not like take meat dishes remove the beef right uh, no it, this is just vegetarian dishes designed to be delicious for that given ingredient and and so on so indians it's very hard to pin down indians as they focus on this no indians have a tendency to focus on everything and so in that sense yes they do focus on health they do focus on nutrition they do focus on taste and flavor and i think if there's one thing that i will point out that i sometimes have a uh, people find difficult to accept is the fact that we're also very very insular and very intolerant about food that we are not familiar with so the tiny number of people who enjoy who experiment and, and try new cuisines the vast majority absolutely not the vast majority are basically a uh, north indian not liking the chapati in chennai because you know they might use sesame oil or uh, uh, a different sort of spices and it doesn't quite taste the same and so on it is really just that indians themselves because they just grow up eating delicious food at home find it very very difficult to accept other tastes other flavors other methods of cooking and and so on so that i think in obviously amongst the urban young and others who are going abroad it is changing but for the most part also remember india is like very tightly divided by caste and community and, and religion and all of that so your food habits are tied to that so if you grow up in a family that eats no onion garlic then forget about meat i mean you can't eat at anybody else's house where they cook onion and garlic so by extension you can't really be friends with uh, someone you can't eat, cook for someone you can't eat at somebody else's food so which is why india never had restaurants as a culture till like the 1940s till well people really started accepting that yeah it's okay to eat food cooked by someone from another caste we never really had restaurants uh, it, this is not to say there was no public eating of course temples were actually making and giving food free for everyone that was there but there was no commercial capitalistic food industry per se and the other idea that uh, that you must not charge money for food is also very tightly ingrained into the indian psyche right you know there is a sense that if you're giving someone food you can't charge money for it that you must give it free 
So all of these sorts of things make the Indian sort of psyche uh, towards food a very unique thing. Mm, got it. And also the other thing about the whole Indian food and and now the conversation and in the culture where a lot of people are talking about right. So okay, we have done all the Western things right. So we we have eaten our food and then we got fascinated with the pizzas and pastas and whatnot. And then now we are all of a sudden realizing that. Hey, wait a second! Like, in fact, our Indian food in itself, like home cooked Indian food in itself, was something that I should continue to eat because that's way healthier than what we try to sort of uh, pick fr- from the modern foods, which are like quick I, per se. Right. So I I'll push back a little bit on that. Yeah. Right. I I think there is again a natural tendency to want to blame the pizzas and the snacks and so on. A pizza is not particularly any more unhealthy than a samosa. Or a kachori, for that matter, uh, or uh, name any traditional snack. Uh, let's be honest there, right? And and so therefore, I think you know there is this. It, it's not like there are no Indian snacks that that don't use maida, right? Uh, so let's let's not get there, right? And again, the the point about a pizza is that nobody's asking you to eat a full pizza, and you can always eat a pizza that has vegetables on top, and then there is cheese and all that. And if you're eating one slice and then not eating a big dessert, that's not not really the problem. And I think what people are also missing is that. It, the distinction is really between home cooked food and restaurant cooked food. It doesn't matter whether it's a pizza or whether it's a dal chawal. Mm. Okay, a dal you order from a hotel three times more calories. You, there is just no escaping it. Mm. A restaurant is just simply incentivized to make food delicious. If they do not, you people will not buy. It. And the only way to make it more delicious is to add more fat, more ghee, more spice, more more salt, uh, more sugar. So therefore. Anything you buy in a restaurant is, by definition, actually going to be more unhealthy than what you make at home. So, so I think the distinction should not be about uh, saying that no, Ajkal, you know, people are eating pizzas and that's what's making them unhealthy. No, you know, so people are obviously when they're going to when they go out, they are going to gravitate towards eating things that they cannot make at home. I mean, nobody goes out to a restaurant to eat dal chawal. Mm. But remember, this is also changing because now you are you're Swiggy, Zomatoing those things home, and you're regularly. You're like no, I don't want pizza because pizza gets cold. I want to order. I want to spaghetti, uh, kichdi. I want to order a uh, some sort of a uh, dal makhani and and naan and all of that. You think that's healthy? I mean, a, a naan is made of the same base that a pizza is. It's a naan is basically the base of a pizza. Mm. So, so I think you know it is just that I think people have a in having this distortion. I think what people end up doing is they somehow believe as long as I eat Indian food, I'm healthy, and they will eat unhealthy Indian food. So again, let me tell you, the rate of diabetes in India is not different amongst people who eat pizzas and people who don't eat pizzas. All right, uh, there are many people in my own family; they've never touched a pizza in their lives. They all have diabetes, but they're eating rice three times a day uh, and eating nothing else—not eating enough protein, not eating enough micronutrients, and their sedentary lifestyle. And so clearly, I think you know, people are not paying attention to the actual science of what uh, causes glucose spikes and so on. It is just that any kind of carb-heavy meal is not great for you. And yes, of course, the saturated fat and all of that is, of course, also going to add on heart problems and all of that. But I think you know the very same people who say no to pizza sit and eat uh, thousands of biscuits in their lives. They are dipping into their tea. Uh, what what fat do you think is there in that biscuit? It's all sat- same saturated fat. So it's just that people need to have a a common sense, more neutral, a fact based approach to this. You must eat home cooked food. You must eat more vegetables. You must eat more protein, and you must reduce consumption of fat and carbohydrates. However, you do this. Whether you order from a cloud kitchen or whether you make it at home doesn't really matter. Yeah, whether it's Italian or Western or American really doesn't matter. Hmm. So talking about blame, there's a lot of blame right now pointed 
towards seed oils, right? Which mustard oil, for example, in North is such a big thing. It has been there for ages. And, uh, you know, I got to spend some time in Gujarat and they make in uh, Badutra, cottonseed oil. So, and so on and so forth. So what's your thought on the whole pointing fingers at seed oils are like, you know, inflammatory and so on and so forth? So the problem right now, overall with fats over the last, I would actually say since the 1950s, the 70 years, there has been a relentless combination of confusion by the food industry, deliberate confusion by the food industry, and essentially the complexity of the science in, right, the nutrition science in. Let's first address the, the deliberate confusion. The sugar industry lobbied in the 1950s when diabetes and heart disease rates went up in the US. The government said, we need to find a reason, right? You know, we have to fix this problem because millions of Americans are dying from heart disease and diabetes. So basically, these guys uh, did the study. They essentially found out that sugar was the problem. But secondarily, they said, well, saturated fats can also be a problem. And so what the sugar industry said is, let us pay researchers to specifically focus on fats and completely ignore sugars and let us paint them as the villain. And so from the 1950s to the 1980s, all we heard was fats are bad, fats are bad, cholesterol is bad, cholesterol is bad. If you eat cholesterol, you will get cholesterol. Don't eat too much ghee. Don't eat too much coconut oil. Don't eat the yolk of the egg, right? Don't eat full fat milk. I mean, the entire obsession with low fat, low fat, low fat was just, uh, we started, uh, and in fact, the great popularity of vegetable and seed oils itself kind of became popular during the time. The demand went up so high that there was no way everyone could simply go with cold press uh, oils. It had to be refined. There is no other way you could actually produce something that had the shelf life enough to really uh, yeah, meet that kind of demand, right? And so that's one side of the story, right? And then by the 1980s and 1990s, we kind of realized that, okay, people have been low fat for such a long time. <laughs> diabetes and heart disease rates have continued to go up. So what's the reason? And then eventually they said, oh, no, the problem is actually sugar. The problem is carbohydrates. Uh, the problem is not uh, fat. And, and now, therefore, I think uh, that is one side of the story. The second side of the story is that within fats itself, it is now nearly impossible so that if you look at all of the top health uh, nutrition agencies, all of the WHO and all of these guys, right? They broadly say, look, the problem is public wants simple answers. But the problem is I can't give you a simple answer. So what they generally say is, it doesn't matter what fat you eat. Make sure that the overall amount of calories from fat are between the 20 to 30% range, right? 20 on the lower end, 30 on the higher end, right? And if you're like a heart disease, maybe a little bit less, right? It doesn't matter. Your overall calories, 100% calories, keep your fat calories to 20 to 30. Once you do that, it doesn't really matter what fat you eat. Then the second bit of advice is, eat multiple oils, don't just eat one fat. Because honestly, we have we have no way of knowing. So I can't tell you for sure that groundnut oil is the most amazing thing. Just only eat that and nothing else. He said it's too risky for us to say. Because different people react differently. There are people who eat only groundnut oil are very healthy. There are people who only eat groundnut oil and have a lot of heart disease. There are just too many other factors I can't tell you at all. So mix and match. So, you know, if you're eating Maharashtrian food, use cottonseed or groundnut oil. If you're using Bengali food, eat uh, mustard oil. If you're using... South Indian, you eat coconut or uh, this thing. So, appropriately, whatever cuisine you're eating, use that fat, right? And then, what is even more confusing now is that it's now even hard to say, earlier we used to think saturated fats are just bad. Now, even that is now tricky because there are people who consume lots of saturated fat like France and Kerala, Indonesia and Africa who are all pretty healthy, right? So, the problem, therefore, they said is, okay, because there is so much conflicting research, keep saturated fats to not more than 10% of your daily calories. So, this basically means that 
as long as you're being moderate about the fat you consume, it doesn't really matter. Seed oils, I think the problem is that there is some here and there, there have been this research that polyunsaturated fats, particularly ones that are squeezed and refined and go through multiple rounds of refining and all of that, end up actually causing inflammation and all of that. There is really no convincing evidence at this point. Right. But the problem is there are enough Instagram influencers who are willing to turn that one random paper out of context and tell you everything is poison. The fact of the matter is, if you are generally not consuming too much fat in your diet, it's like you're not deep frying every day and all of that. It doesn't really matter whether it's refined, cold pressed or saturated. Just use a mix of everything. I normally just tell people that, well, if you really want a simple method now, use cold press for daily sauteing use, uh, use refined for deep frying. And use uh, a, a ghee for special occasions, right? I mean, I don't want you to make a biryani with some refined or cold press oil. It's a, please use ghee. It's okay. It's like, <laughs> what's the point of, you know? Yeah. yeah. Mm. So when it comes to, you know, cooking methods and you uh, outline different methods in your book as well. So from the, again, looking from the health standpoint, since we are talking about health. So what are some of the Indian cooking methods that are, if you were to rate them in the order of like, this is the most healthy and this is not so uh, from the nutrient loss perspective. See, again, the only thing is that I often ask people, for some reason, people seem to believe that nutrient loss by cooking method is a huge factor. Somehow people have this belief. And I always have to keep telling them no, because it's it's not that straightforward. Okay. Technically speaking, all cooking will destroy some nutrients. That's the very de- fundamental definition of cooking because heat is involved. And heat has a tendency to break down molecules. That's just the way things work, right? But at the same time, heat also transforms your food. Technically speaking, a raw dal is nutritious. You lose about 25% of its micronutrients when you cook it. But nobody can digest raw dal. So you'll have other problems if you eat raw dal. It has too many anti-nutrients. So it's not straightforward. So cooking actually reduces anti-nutrients as well as nutrients. And in some cases, it makes some nutrients more available. Tomatoes are a great example. Cooked tomatoes, more lycopene uh, than raw tomatoes. Cooked carrots, more but carotenoids what about the vitamin C than raw in carrots. The, in the Correct, tomatoes. Right. So vitamin C is, yes, vitamin C is very heat sensitive. So the second thing is, therefore, my next question always to you is, when you say nutrient, please tell me what is nutrient, right? So then people have to think it's, okay, so macronutrients are protein, carbohydrates, fats, right? And then there are micronutrients. Micronutrients are vitamins. And then there are antioxidants, polyphenols, and all those spice flavor molecules and minerals. Well, these are the micronutrients for the most part, right? It turns out cooking does not destroy any macronutrients, right? Uh, neither does storing in a fridge, neither does storing in a freezer, neither does macronutrients do not get destroyed. Uh, you know, law of conservation of mass and all of that. It really does not get destroyed. Okay. Micronutrients, different micronutrients work differently. So vitamin B and vitamin C, which are the water-soluble vitamins, they are the most heat-sensitive. Fat-soluble vitamins are not. You will not. You're not going to destroy fat-soluble vitamins by cooking. So your vitamin A, D, E, K, none of that stuff is going to get uh, destroyed. But vitamin B, the water-soluble vitamins, and vitamin C are the ones that are commonly going to get destroyed. Typically, you lose about twenty to twenty-five percent through any form of cooking method. Again, in general, you don't eat one dish. The reason you eat a ton of things, you eat a mix of cooked and raw, is to make sure that you're getting everything right. Uh, which is also why I think, you know, you squeeze lime at the end, you've got back all your lost vitamin C. And it's anyway a generally good thing to do. It's always good to have a salad on the side. Why do you have a salad on the side? Because you're going to get all of those missing B and C uh, minerals from that. And so I think in general, uh, and again, you don't need much. Uh, So it's not like you need to eat it every day as well, right? So therefore, people just completely break their head. So therefore, 
now when you think about cooking methods you really essentially are ranking them in terms of okay in terms of vitamin b and c destruction which is the which is the least destructive most destructive least destructive is microwave then followed by steaming then followed by boiling and pressure cooking so i want to talk a little bit about microwave because i think you also try to there's a lot of myth around that right so one of the things that uh, you know we often keep hearing is it's not a healthy thing to microwave your food it is the healthiest because actually it only heats water it does nothing else right see the problem with boiling is that a ton of those uh, micronutrients will get lost to the water especially if you discard the water right steaming is better uh, but steaming takes time mm-hmm. okay so there is a question of energy so people also have to balance lpg costs and other things boss see this is not a differential function where you're only going to optimize for uh, micronutrients okay people have to optimize for cost people have to optimize for affordability and time people have to go you know uh, go for work and all of that and you don't have to break your head so things like deep frying and tandoor baking and convection baking in general are very high temperature so you can rest assured all your micro all your uh, polyphenols and all of that stuff is going to get destroyed so nobody is eating a puri batura papad and uh, vada and all of that for micronutrients let's be mm. honest about that okay yeah. you're eating it because they're delicious uh, you're not eating it because you're going to get some antioxidants and all of that so therefore i think you know you're going to get that from see you're going to get antioxidants from the spices you add you're going to get antioxidants from the fruits and the vegetables raw, raw fruits and vegetables that you eat right and definitely from some of the cooked fruits and vegetables uh, as well uh, but yes you might lose some to the cooking process but you're still getting enough so you don't have to really break your head about it uh, in general so just remember that cooking temperatures under the boiling point of water which is what you're going to get in a microwave boiling steaming all of that are all relatively the least destructive from a micronutrient standpoint then sauteing dry food sauteing the temperature will go above 100 celsius so you're going to lose some more deep frying is 175 celsius you're going to lose a lot more uh, and baking is at 220 230 celsius and the tandoor is like 500 celsius so you want to think about that but at the same time that those high temperature cooking produces the most delicious foods right the brown coloring and all of that really comes only with the high temperature uh, but high temperature also comes with the risk of producing some of these uh, bad molecules like acrylamide which are considered carcinogenic and so on but the point is that if you're eating in a balanced sense right nobody's going to blame you for eating two puris with a lot of vegetables with a side salad i think that's a perfectly fine beat so it's really you know, people just waste their time thinking about these things. okay um so now that you know we are talking about uh, nutrition and stuff like that one of the things is a lot of times like after we have soaked in our pulses or dal overnight what do we do with that water you discard that okay the soaking water you discard because i think that's just mostly a lot of anti nutrients that uh, if you're going to cook with that that will then further prevent the absorption of uh, the actual nu- uh, the nutrients in the dal right so you soak it you remove all of that right you discard that water those are all largely anti nutrients yeah got it remember a plant doesn't want you to eat it okay? yeah uh seeds are designed to not be eaten and so all seeds have anti nutrients on their outside human ingenuity has meant that we can now take that actual full dal and then we can use this roller mill to break it open and then get to the stuff inside yeah so that's the distinction between the whole dal the chilke wali dal and the split dal the split dal is the easiest to digest mm. chilke wali dal is good it's healthy because it's a mix of easy to digest but some fiber also right but it's going to have some anti nutrients the whole dal are 25% of the population can't digest it. forget about it and there are people saying that no no you must only heat the whole dal are you kidding me <laughs> most people will have indigestion right uh, some people may be allergic to it and all that so i think it's always a, a sort of like a balance 
So with dals, actually, you discard the the soaking water, but you retain the water in which you cook it. Right? Mm. So that's like super uh, nutritious. Nutritious, water. yeah, got it. Yeah. Because it's all like extracted, soup, like aquafaba. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, mm. it's, it's a lot of uh, very umami, right? So very very vegetarian umami because the protein you're going to get a lot of the glutamates and all of that. So mm. that's why it's a soup base in general, right? And uh, in fact, for chana, cooking water of the chana has pro- properties very similar to egg. So it's called aquafaba. So vegan vegan egg is actually made from the water that in which chana has been cooked. Oh wow. That's mm. what they make vegan eggs, yes. Got it. Um so for the larger part of my life I have uh, you know always tried to stay away from pickles because of the oil that you know they are made in. So what are your thoughts on pickle uh, and particularly the way we make here in India, right? In in oils. So there are two ways in which you can pickle um and I personally prefer one of the ways over the other. First way of pickling is brining and fermentation is number one. And the second is basically acid and oil. So basically, the first method essentially allows the right kind of bacteria to colonize whatever it is you're fermenting and then produce lactic acid, which then makes it inhospitable to other bacteria. And it also makes it slightly sour, right? So we do this to things like amla, we do this to uh, lime, uh, chilies, and many of these things, at least I, I know we do that in South India, where many of these things. All you have to do is add a little bit of salt, less than 2% salt, and just let it sit for months on end, and it will just ferment, um, and it will last for a fair amount of time, right, at room temperature. Obviously, I think it is also going to, every day it's going to taste a little bit different, because as the fermentation goes a little, sometimes it's very funky. Sometimes not. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and, and again, there is always the occasional risk that sometimes the fungus will get through, and that's going to be bad for you. You really just want the bacteria. So the food industries, the other alternative way is actually to dunk the whole thing inside oil and use acidic ingredients. So inside oil, uh, no oxygen. Uh, you're not going to get uh, no anaerobic conditions, so you don't have microbes. And so therefore, you end up preserving. And you also make sure, as I added this thing, you use sour ingredients uh, like mangoes and lime and things like that. And you also use antibacterial ingredients like uh, mustard powder and fenugreek uh, and so on traditionally used within pickles and the other thing you use is obviously salt a lot of salt and so these are just two approaches uh, and you sort of make it spicy as well it's a lot of chilies and other things so again that also makes it inhospitable the second method is actually more suitable for commercial production of pickle meaning that like earlier people who do make pickles at home if everybody can't make pickles at home you're going to have to buy it from a store but the industry cannot simply be doing lacto-fermented brine and all that because it's not a standardized product it's it's going to be very very hard to standardize and so on. So therefore, I think, you know, it's just both categories. Uh, the former category is generally way more healthier and actually good for you, probiotic and so on. The second one is just a technique to uh, improve the taste of very bland food. That's really all there is to it. It's not very healthy. Uh, so yeah, so you want to eat uh, not too much. Mm. So I have one question that I want to know from you. If you were to create a spice mix that represents you, what would it contain and why? So in general, my my sort of uh, food science hack has always been to take popular existing spice mixes because I like, you know, I like the punch foran, I like uh, the sambar powder, I like the chetinard masala. I, my favorite spice mix actually is goda masala. I think it is spectacular. It has that patar uh, ke fool, you know, the stone flower and very, very interesting coconut and everything else, right? My hack has always been to take some of these individual spice mixes that already exist. I don't think I can invent a new spice mix that's better than things that have been established for thousands of years. But I would just add four things to it. One is dehydrated garlic, dehydrated onion, which is the powder, right? Powdered form of onion, garlic, dehydrated ginger, 
and dehydrated tomato. And I often tell people that if you have these four powders in your freezer, if you're wondering why when you buy some, you know, packet of chips uh, from the store and you're like, you just can't stop eating, it's because it has these four ingredients. So all your spice mixes that, that are there in a Maggi Masala, in a Uncle Chips or whatever it is, right? They will all have these four. You can actually look up at the ingredients. Dehydrated tomato, onion, garlic and ginger will be there everywhere, right? And then so you combine that with the super aromatic, the cardamom and the and the star anise and, uh, and the black cardamom and so on. It is just astonishing. Weirdly enough, I know it's a bit of, it's overused right now. Indian's current most favorite aroma right now is Peri Peri, okay? <laughs> there is a peri peri flavor of everything peri peri momos peri peri everything right and and so that again actually it comes from actually that that variety of chili that comes from uh, mozambique in, in east africa and it has a more it, it is hot but it also has a fantastic aroma so i would actually say you can actually take a lot of traditional i can take a sambar powder which is very heavy in chilies and use the dried peri peri chili i think that will make for an astonishingly interesting sambar as well so, but then I'm not able to find uh, dried peri-peri chilies uh, here that easily. I have to ask whether somebody from the food industry can uh, source me some. Mm. Awesome. Uh, so, are there any, some of the biggest myths that you see? I know there are a lot, but when it comes to, you know, Indian food and cooking that you would like to share? I, I'll keep it simple. I think the single biggest big picture myth about food, diet and nutrition is that there is such a thing as hero foods and villain foods. Mm. That's the single biggest myth. You are wasting your time. If you go down that route, only way to be healthy, lose weight, reverse diabetes or reduce the onset of all of that sort of stuff is to eat less food, right? It's not exercise. It's not all. Yes, exercise is great for many other things, not for weight loss. People just need to eat less food and they need to eat it less frequently. Mm -hmm. Once they do that, then they can take on other things. Maybe the mix of processed, unprocessed, all that stuff makes it easier, right? So problem with processed food is that it will never satisfy you, so you'll end up eating more anyway. That's the problem. So therefore, if the apex crime is actually the fact that you eat too much food. Not whether it's microwaved or whether it's air fried or whether it's processed or whether it's pizza or whether it is uh, uh, maida made with atta, made with millet, made with uh, something else. None of that stuff matters as much as people think it does. That's the single biggest myth, actually. 90% of Instagram and YouTube uh, nutrition content uh, can be dismissed if you just apply this filter. Right. <laughs> is the guy really focusing on that or not? Not focusing on that, it's all a waste of time. You can just simply ignore it. That's the number. I, I think that is the single greatest tip. Awesome. I think that's a that's a great tip right there. Because a lot of places in the in the world, right, where people tend to live much longer, they eat eighty percent, eighty percent. Their mix of what they eat is also very different. It's many things. It's yeah. salad, it is. Right? It's not just like one, you know, it's not one giant serving of biryani. Mm-hmm. It's not like one this much chawal and rajma or one, you know, two aloo parathas and some dahi, right? It is far more balanced, right? I think it's really about the number of things you eat on the plate. And then again, people have to remember that if you embrace the fridge, mm. you can actually have a very much healthier meal because you can't honestly cook eight dishes, uh, seven dishes uh, every day for yourself. But you can cook large portions, put them in the fridge and your daily plate every day has a mix of things. That's a far more sustainable thing. Again, the myth, the second greatest myth is that somehow food goes bad in the fridge. It loses nutrients. The answer is it loses no nutrients, boss. It does not lose anything. Awesome. Ashok, clearly there's a lot uh, that we can talk about and we can go on and on on this topic. You know, I have one last question before I ask that question. Thank you so much for doing everything that you are doing and for everybody listening. His book, Masala Lab, 
is uh, available. I'll put the link in the description. And, uh, you know, the kind of stuff that he shares in that book, the science that he shares about everything Indian food, cooking methods, uh, spices and whatnot, it's it's pretty much a Bible in terms of understanding Indian food per se and the spices and so on and so forth. I can't recommend that book enough to everybody who's listening and who has got some interest in understanding our food and understanding the science in in the food and, you know, trying to sort of maybe your dadis just did it right. But Ashok says that, okay, let me try and find the science in it. So, you know, that that makes it really, really interesting. Um, So here's the last question for you. Imagine you are standing in a stadium and this is the largest stadium that has ever been built in the history of the world. And there are millions of people passionately, eagerly, you know, waiting to listen to the most important lesson that you have learned in this journey of, you know, understanding food and your experimentation and research and so on and so forth. But the catch is you have only one minute of time to share the most important lesson. What would you share? The most important lesson I've actually learned is that uh, you cannot afford to deprioritize convenience and your environment over some sort of strong willpower and you know brain power and you know all of that sort of stuff that it is easier to not keep a packet of biscuits within arm's reach in your house than to have the biscuit there but ha- build the mental power to say i will not eat it uh, so change your environment i think that's much much simpler right it's easier to change your behavior by changing your environment don't be under this egotistical assumption that you can change yourself. That's very, very hard to do when it comes to food. The second thing is convenience is king. Eating yesterday's food from the refrigerator is a hundred times healthier than ordering fresh food from a restaurant today. So do never, never not prioritize convenience. Use all the devices you can that will help you make fresh food faster. Use all the devices from the fridge and the refrigerator, from an air fryer to a microwave to an induction stuff. Use every shortcut you possibly can, including even buying vegetables that are already pre-cut, if you think that is convenient, to quickly make a salad, to quickly make a dish. Embrace every one of that convenience if the end goal is that you're cooking yourself. That is a hundred times better than believing in all of that other nonsense that everything has to be made ground up, everything has to be made fresh, uh, and I will not eat yesterday's food. Uh, and instead, you assume that somehow ordering fresh from a restaurant is better for you. It is not. So, and I think learn to cook. That's the the one skill that will keep you, guaranteed to keep you healthy for the longest amount of time and your extended family. Uh, so learn to cook. Thank you, Ashok. Thank you so much. It has been such a, such a great conversation and there's a lot of takeaways for me as well. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed listening to this, I want you to do two things for me. Number one, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, subscribe to the podcast and give five-star ratings. This will help me attract more listeners to this podcast and take this information to a wider audience so that we can help more people grow in their life. And second, share this episode with at least three people in your network who you think need to hear this episode. You never know, just by sharing this episode, you can help them transform their life. Be that person who helps others grow in their life. Thanks again for listening to this episode. I'll catch you in the next. Now, go out there and do something inspiring.